Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists, and food makers, farmers, authors, and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good Sunday to you, food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. The culinary landscape, it is ever-evolving. And by tuning in here every Sunday, you'll hear from chefs and pastry aficionados, restaurateurs, and molecular gastronomers. You'll find some food bloggers weighing in, some food enthusiasts, a few cookbook authors, and more on this show. I love to dish on fabulous food, wine, and spirits, travel, health, and living the best life. So I hope that you won't miss a week of delicious conversation with me. This is where the most passionate food and wine lovers come to dish. And I'm always serving up seconds, by the way, at chefjamie.com, where you can find podcasts of shows that you might have missed. And of course, you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. So, foodies in the know, you are well aware that hummus is having its day in the sun, right? It's actually more like a year of popularity. There is a serious hummus revolution happening. Why, you ask? Well, maybe it's because it's rich on protein and low on calories. It makes a really delicious hearty dip. It doubles as a sandwich spread and it travels really well. But all of those prepared containers that you have to choose from when it comes to hummus can be daunting. So I thought that I would kick off this show with a master tutorial on hummus at home. It's really inexpensive to make. And when hummus is well made, it tastes far better than the packaged versions. Now, the hummus that most of us know and love is typically a little bit grainy, right? It has some texture on the tongue. But there is a lot to love about hummus of any sort, and so therefore we are eating plenty of it. In fact, trendsetters predicted that 2015 would be the year when hummus would be America's it food, going from a a very niche product eaten primarily by Israeli and Arab immigrants to a trend toward ubiquity. Hummus, they say, those statistic trendsetters, can now be found in more than 25% of American households. And what I've discovered in my quest to make the ultimate hummus is, like everything when it comes to the kitchen, what you put in it definitely matters. And especially because it's made up of just a few ingredients, right? So you really need to make each of those ingredients count. Now, I like a style of classic hummus that is thick and rich and ultra smooth. And I like it remarkably light. And I will give you those tips and tricks coming up, so stay tuned. Um, There are very few ingredients, and each one has to be at the top of its game so that you get the result of what hummus dreams are made of. That sort of luscious thickness like buttercream in glorious peaks and valleys. So, those few but very important ingredients include a few things. Let me put it together for you. The chickpeas, first and foremost. Now, hummus means chickpeas in Arabic, so why the black bean hummus or the red pepper hummus that you see might taste good, uh, and there might or might not be a chickpea in there. True hummus is chickpea-based with just a few 
additional ingredients. Now, the most important thing to note about chickpeas, both the dried and the canned varieties, is that they have a translucent skin. And those skins are the cause of grainy hummus. And they tend to dampen the flavor. So they have to go. Now, many methods are employed for this task. The secret is to using baking soda to soften dried chickpeas overnight. It actually loosens the skins. And when you boil the chickpeas with the baking soda, by the way, and the water that they've been soaking in, you skim off all the skins that float. Now, this is a little harder to do when you're using canned chickpeas, but I do have a chef friend in Chicago, in fact, who will boil canned chickpeas with baking soda um, for just a few minutes, and he sees the skins lift, and he'll lift them then off the top of the pot. Now, I know it takes an extra step, but if you're going to master hummus, well, then this is the way to go. Now, the second and really, I think the main ingredient that's most important is tahini. Now, not all tahinis are created equal. It is a sesame paste that tends to be sort of sludgy and it can be bitter. So the most important tip I can share is that you look for an imported tahini because you'll get better quality. Now, it's made from roasted or raw sesame seeds. And when it's made from the roasted sesame seeds, it has that darker, deep, wonderful flavor. And I generally favor anything that is toasted or roasted. So both are delicious. But if you can find the toasted tahini, you will have a better tasting hummus. Now, when it comes to the garlic, I like roasted garlic for that soft, subtle flavor, but you can use raw as well. And then there is no substitute for fresh lemon juice for that bright, beautiful, citrusy flavor when it comes to great hummus. Now, once the chickpeas, whether they're canned or dried and then boiled until tender, have been drained of their liquid, you place them in the food processor, of course, and you process with your garlic of choice, the tahini, some lemon juice, and um, really copious amounts of salt and pepper that you're seasoning with until it reaches your palate's personal flavor profile. Now, hummus gives olive oil its purpose. I believe that very good extra virgin olive oil drizzled on top of the hummus rather than incorporating it is the way to go. You really get a light fluffy hummus if you've made it well. And then the olive oil on the top adds that incredible mouthfeel, that beautiful pleasure, that incredible payoff. And so now you know, when you make your first batch of brilliant hummus, there will be no going back to the store-bought version. I'd love to know how your hummus turns out, and you can always pose your cooking questions via email. I take all emails directly. Jamie at chefjamie.com will get you to me. Okay, it's time for the food news for food lovers. A couple things you need to know to be fantastically in the know and foodie fabulous this week. A grilled peanut butter and jelly sandwich beat Mexican street corn, salted potato pizza, and other mobile chef's delights this past week in the New York State Fair's inaugural food truck competition. Now, that's one that I missed because I would have loved to be there. The sandwich, a grilled peanut butter and jelly, was actually prepared by PB&J's Lunchbox of Syracuse. It was made from homemade peanut butter and um, freshly made jam. I believe it was peach. And it won the Judge's Choice Award at 
last Sunday's competition. And I think that's pretty cool. And while there are many reasons some foods need to stay out of the fridge, new research shows that the refrigerator can dehydrate your bread, sweeten your potatoes, and harden your honey. And by the way, the rule applies to onions too. When an onion is chilled, the cold, humid temperatures in your fridge convert the starch to sugars, and not the good sugars like that you caramelize in a pan, but rather those that make the onion soft or soggy a lot faster. So, based on these new statistics and research, may I recommend that you keep your onions in the mesh bag that they came in or in a bowl in a cool, dry, ventilated space in your pantry. Do not store the onions in a brown bag, by the way. They need to breathe so that they do not decompose. And as a bonus, if you want to reduce the amount of tears that fly out of your face when you cut onions, the National Onion Association recommends chilling the onion for about 30 minutes before cutting the top off and peeling off its outer layers. So now you are a foodie in the know. And don't touch your dial because there is so much more delicious conversation coming up. Let me tell you what is on your plate. Well, she is the New York Times food columnist that I love. She is Melissa Clark, and I'm so delighted that she is stopping by to dish on fall foods and what she's cooking now. Plus, Natasha McCaller is waxing poetic on the beauty of the vanilla bean at the middle of the hour and before the end of the hour. Chef Pierre Cham is sharing the story and the cuisine of Senegal. He is a fascinating chef with tremendous passion, and you will not want to miss the conversation. Lots more gastronomic inspiration coming up right after the break. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. I'm glad you're listening. Don't go away. If food is your fetish, well, I am supplying the tools. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. So there are uh, just a few writers, a handful at most, in this great foodie world of ours who have their name on as many spines as Melissa Clark. The food journalist and New York Times columnist is the author or co-author of an astounding 32 cookbooks, including titles that are written with culinary legends like Daniel Ballou and David Boulay. And she's written her own books as well. Cook This Now, of course. And then the second solo project of Melissa Clark's is In the Kitchen with a Good Appetite. I am a great fan of Melissa and her recipes, and it's been way too long since she has graced this program. Melissa Clark has been a food columnist for the dining section of the New York Times since 2007. She reports on food trends, creates recipes, appears in cooking videos, which are fabulous, and she offers a really practical approach to seasonal cooking, one that is balanced with shopping at the farmer's market and a working mom's busy schedule. So she stops by to dish today, and I am delighted. How are you, Melissa? Welcome back. (laughs) I am well. So great to be here. Thank you. Glad to have you. Okay, it is the second week of September. We're post-Labor Day. The kids are back to school most everywhere across the country. It's the start of fall, which I happen to love this particular change of season. So I want to know what you're cooking now. Well, you know, 
It is the start of fall, but people seem to forget that it, we're still in summer. You know, summer goes till the end of September, till September 21st, and this is the moment where some of summer's produce is at its absolute perfect moment. You know, we've got tomatoes, which are just full and ripe and luscious. We Mm. have, we still have eggplant. We have amazing chilies. I mean, the chilies are just, whether they're sweet bell peppers or spicy chilies, they're just perfect right now. And so those are the ingredients I'm using. We still have corn. Yes. The end of the corn season, but it's still there. And so I really feel like I like to take September as my last moment of summer, summer's last Mm. gasp, even though it is, you know, it does feel like fall because we're back to school. I'd say, I say, you know, we're going to lose this stuff in about three weeks. So let's just do it now and, you know, eat our, eat to our heart's content. Right. And eat the bounty. I love the idea of making summer last as long as possible. So if I name an ingredient, would you give us your best insight? Um, And I actually, I have to give you your first one. I know that sounds ridiculous, but I cannot, if I said tomatoes, I will tell you, I cannot wait to make your caramelized tomato tart to tan, which is posted on the New York Times uh, cooking website in your blog. That looks outrageously delicious. Heirlooms or farmer's market or store-bought, no doubt. That has to be one of the most delicious ways to say a farewell to summer. Yeah, that's a, you know, that is actually a perfect example of the season right now because we're still using summer ingredients like tomatoes, but we're also not afraid to turn the oven on. You know, it's not as hot as it was. So it's okay to bake something like a tart tatin. Yes. And that recipe is... Um, it is, if the only tricky thing is making the caramel, but once you get past that, it's super easy because you buy the puff pastry. Mm-hmm. You don't have to make your own pastry. And what you do is you make a really simple caramel. Um, my advice to people who are nervous about making their own caramel is to just put it over a low flame. Don't rush it. And that way you're not going to have to worry about over-browning or under-browning. You just take your time and you do it slow and it's going to come out perfect. Then you add your tomatoes, you put your, your puff pastry on top, you put it in the oven, and mm. this is the most gorgeous thing. Your guests will freak. And you know what? It's great to serve with that. Burrata or mozzarella mm. cheese. Okay, oh, I, I believe... Yummy, uh-huh. yum. Thank you. Burrata and mangoes, um, two things sent from God, I, no doubt. And that really is a wow dish. Like, that's the ultimate in ta-da... And you can literally master it, make it your signature, and then change it up, right? Because as we get deeper into fall or into winter, it translates to an apple tart to tan. Or what else could you do? Oh, yeah. Gosh, you could do so many things. I mean, you, the thing about the tart to tan is that you need something that's going to exude some moisture. Right. Um, so, you know, tomatoes are juicy. You know, mm-hmm. apples have some nice juice in them. Grapes would be fabulous. Um, we're getting some, you know, September's a good season. We're starting with the grapes right now. So this is a great time for, you know, for sweet grapes, for um, interesting kinds of grapes. There are a lot more variety in grapes that we can buy. I've seen at the farmer's market, we have all kinds of grapes. We have Concords, we have um, something called Black Flame. So I would do that. Um, Another idea is to use pears. Pears, you know, nice juicy pears are fantastic. Nice. Oh, I love that. I happen to love the Moscato, the wine grapes that have been crossbred with the traditional Tom, you know, uh, Thompson and so on. And you could really throw a fabulous wine and food party and incorporate, you know, all the nuances of 
the flavors from the wine grapes and otherwise into all the dishes. Oh, see, now we're planning a party, Melissa. Oh, I, I know. Love I, I love this idea. <laughs> I, like, I like that we start talking about food and you're like, party. Because party. that's true. I mean, that's what happens when you start to, to make amazing food. You want to share it. You yes. want to bring your family in. Oh, you want to bring your true. friends in. And you really want to share the bounty. Isn't that true? If you just tuned in, by the way, you're late because she is Melissa Clark. And she is... The food writer, uh, columnist, recipe creator for the New York Times. In fact, their new website really gives you like literally one click access to everything delicious that Melissa is working on and delivering to you. And it's at cooking.nytimes.com. Okay, if I say eggplant, Melissa, what do you make? Oh my gosh, eggplant is one of my absolute favorites. And this is funny, you know, when I met my husband, he did not, he thought he didn't like eggplant, (laughs) but he just never had really great eggplant. You know, he doesn't like, a lot of people are like this, you know, they don't like sort of too mushy textures and he'd only had sort of baba ganoush style and eggplant and dip. And what I like to do is I like to make eggplant that is roasted so it is browned and brown and really crunchy on the outside and mm. then just meltingly tender within. So that's another great dish to make now when you, you don't mind putting your broiler on. You take your eggplant, you cut it into cubes. Um, if you can get baby eggplant or small eggplants, um, they should feel light for their size. If they feel light for their size, it means they're going to have fewer seeds in them, which is going to give you more, you know, delicious eggplant flesh and you won't get that bitter flavor. So you cut up your eggplant. You you can skin it or not. I leave the skins on because I think it's pretty and I like the way they taste. Toss it with just enough olive oil to coat, plenty of salt. Put it in one layer on a baking sheet. That's important. One layer. Don't overlap because you want the crispness. And then you can either broil it or you can roast it at 500, high, turning high it heat. until it is just brown yes. and gorgeous. And mm. that is, you can do anything with that. That's your base. You can put it into a salad. You could put it, um, I love that with pasta, you know, simple. Uh, or you can use, you know what is great? Farro pasta or a whole wheat pasta, something with a lot of personality mm-hmm. and a, maybe a chunky shape. You mix that eggplant in there. Maybe some. you take some le- end of the season corn or you know, ripe tomatoes and you add that, some herbs, oh. and you've got a fantastic meal. I am so coming to your house for dinner. I just invited myself. Um, okay, using your crystal ball, can you um, can you forecast for us, please? Because I love that you have your finger on the pulse of food trends, and the remainder of 2015 is going to go very quickly. What can we expect to see? What can you forecast for us as far as food trends through the end of the year and into next year? You know, I, you know, we've had, we've had some it vegetables lately. You mm-hmm. know, remember a couple of years ago, it was, I think, what was it, 2012? It was all about kale. And yeah, kale is king. Kale. Yes. Yes. And then we had uh, sunchokes had their moment, Jerusalem artichokes. That was mm. a very big thing. True. Um, I, I, we've had Brussels sprouts also. I'm, I'm thinking that this is going to be the year of the parsnip. I feel like the holy oh. parsnip is going to get the sweet attention it deserves. I, it is, lo- I uh, love the parsnip. I love a parsnip too, but you know, I don't know that everybody else out there loves a parsnip. So, um, I want everyone to try to find parsnip love. Yes. And I do think, I do think it's going to be a trend. I've seen, you know, I've seen a lot of parsnip popping up on menus. I've huh. seen it in cookbooks. And what's great about a parsnip is that, um, it's so much sweeter than you think it's going to be. I mean, if you roast it, that is. You know, when parsnips have a very high sugar content, but if you boil them or you steam them, you're not really bringing that out. But if you roast it, you get the, you know, you get that browned, caramelized surface, and then it just really tastes sweet and delicious. Oh, roasted root vegetables all combined. Oh, baby little Dutch yellows and... Uh, parsnips and carrots on a baking sheet like you do high heat, like the eggplant. 
Oh, yes. Not okay. quite as high. You know, roots, you know, um, sort of rule of thumb is that things with a higher moisture content, you know, your, your eggplant, your tomato, your um, zucchini, right. you want a higher heat. Things with a lower moisture content, you want a slightly lower. So maybe like 425. Okay, you know, I good. wouldn't pump it up to 450 or 450. Or 475. Keep it more 400, 425. May I please post your caramelized tomato tart to tan linked from chefjamie.com to your recipe box? Absolutely. Thank you. At cooking.nytimes.com, you will find the new cooking site for the New York Times with features, recipes, videos, and more. The column entitled A Good Appetite, and of course, from the fabulous Melissa Clark. I follow you everywhere. Melissa, Melissa Clark or Clark Bar, right? Clark Bar on Instagram, Melissa Clark on Twitter. Thank you. Happy fall to you, Melissa. To you too. We do have the greatest culinary thinkers on this show, so you wouldn't dare touch your dial now, would you? Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. We'll be right back. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Expand your culinary palate right here and right now because you may think that there are a limited number of ways that you can use vanilla in your cooking. But oh no, you'll discover the many wonders of vanilla in the new cookbook release from Natasha McAller titled Vanilla Table. The book is a celebration of all things vanilla from the delights of a vanilla and trout pairing to just how a pinch of vanilla wakes up a pork chop. I actually put it in my brine. And of course, countless ways to make desserts sparkle. Rated by Amazon as one of the best books of 2015 so far. I am delighted that Natasha McAller has come to join us to share her vanilla inspiration and the book, which is really a tribute to vanilla. It is Natasha and other famed chefs in this vanilla tribute that contributed dazzling recipes, and it is a landmark cookbook, no doubt. I'm glad to have you here. Hi, Natasha. How are you? Hi, Jamie. It's (laughs) great to be here. I'm glad to talk to you again. Our paths have crossed um, in multiple ways, I know, um, but I am so thrilled. Congratulations to you for your success and for the beauty of this book. I'm sure you're very proud. Oh, thank you so much. I'm I'm proud and I'm I'm just, I'm thrilled to share Share the vanilla story. And that it is, yes. And and I love your story because this book was really nurtured by um, by a fondness we share in common. Um, you are no doubt a great ambassador for Hey Lala Vanilla. I am a great fan and supporter. And it was a trip to Tonga that really showed the beauty of vanilla to you and your culinary prowess, yes? Oh, yes. It was It was just the most beautiful, inspiring experience to mm. be on this island where they grow the vanilla and where, where the, the two families from New Zealand and from Tonga work together to make this beautiful um, product and, and to incorporate it into everyday life. And it just took off from there. There are many different sources for vanilla worldwide. We all have our favorites, right? Um, but yes, of course. There's the Madagascar vanilla, which I think most of us know as sort of a staple pantry item. And then to me, there are more elevated 
flavor profiles. Like I happen to love the Tongan vanilla, which is brought to us by Halala. Um, but talk about, if you would, the different sources and the different forms that we can find it in today. Because vanilla has come far from the pod. Absolutely, it has. Um, not only do we have the, the vanilla pod, the vanilla bean, uh, we also have uh, vanilla paste, which yes. is a great way if you don't want to split and scrape. We also have a vanilla extract, of course vanilla sugar, vanilla oil, and also this great new product, vanilla powder, which is dried vanilla beans that have been finely sieved, finely ground into a beautiful powder. So if you don't want to add additional liquid to your dish, you can just sprinkle a little vanilla powder in for an extra boost of vanilla. Nice. Okay, what do you use it for? Uh, I use it for, say you're making, a, you're making a cookie or you're making a cake and you already have all the liquid that you, that you need and you just want to give it an extra kick of vanilla, oh. you can use powder. It also works great if you're, you know, say you're making a cocktail and you want to rim the, the, the glass, the martini glass with a little vanilla sugar or you so can make smart. vanilla salt with vanilla powder. You can make your own vanilla salt, and there's actually a recipe in the book to make your own vanilla salt, as well as several other things. I love what what you use the entire pod for. Like, my mom always taught me, you never threw away the vanilla pod. Now, today, you throw it into the simple syrup, and it infuses extra flavor. Um, There are compounding things to do with it, but she always put the vanilla pod after it was scraped into the um, sugar canister, and then it infused its, you know, leftover flavor into the granulated sugar. There are wonderful uses for every last bit of it. Oh yes, yes, absolutely. You can you can actually use the use the vanilla pod initially, and then dry, rinse it really well, mm-hmm. and then dry it out, and then put it in vanilla sugar, or you can put it in vanilla syrup, or put it in something such as vodka, a very clean, um, non-flavored alcohol, and you can make your own vanilla extract. Just keep stuffing those, those vanilla pods in there, and you'll get a stronger and stronger extract. Oh, see, you're my kind of girl when you mention vodka. I actually like a um, house-made vanilla vodka. Like, I've been known to take vanilla beans and make a spirit, essentially, infused with that flavor of vanilla. It makes the ultimate cocktail. Oh, absolutely. You're speaking my language. You see? There's a... There's Two girls on the same page. That's right. That's right. Cocktail hour. Talk to us about this very unique pairing, if you would. Um, Peter Gordon writes a beautiful foreword for the book, and he alludes to a combination without referencing a recipe where he was captivated by you in the fact that you captured this very unique flavor using the essence of vanilla and bacon and I was captivated by it. So do tell. Well, it is, it is absolutely the most great, um, great combination of, of bacon and vanilla. You know, who knew? We have, we have candied uh, bacon and there's bacon, all sorts of things. But this was something that I created for the visit to Tonga. I made something called the Tonga Trifle. And it's not your Nana's, um, your Nana's <laughs> traditional trifle at all. It's got, uh, it's got rum. It's got a lot of vanilla. It's got white chocolate pastry cream, caramel, uh, rum cake, and it's topped with vanilla candied bacon bits. Okay. And I'm in. Is, yeah. <laughs> sold. <laughs> sold is right. And, and uh, there's, there's no Madeira. There's no uh, uh, none of that. And, and people looked at it after a very long, uh, we did a long meal, um, a, a late lunch, early dinner. And I presented this, this Tonga trifle, and they thought, oh, my goodness, I can't have another bite of anything. And they looked at it, and uh, 20 minutes later, I looked over, and all that was left were a few slivered almonds. It was oh gone. Oh, my.
Okay, so how do you make vanilla bacon bits? What form of vanilla do you use, I should ask? Uh, I use a combination of vanilla sugar and vanilla salt. So I would use sugar, um, uh, a little bit of, a little pinch of salt, and then vanilla powder. Okay. And I just rub it into the, into the bacon and spread it on a, a baking tray. Um, mm. with some, some parchment, um, uh, baking paper, and then very slowly cook it in the oven so that it cooks very, very gently, mm. slowly, and you get these lovely long strips. And then I chop it up, crumble it up, and then sprinkle it on top of the Tonga trifle. You're going to have the other things. Yeah, as well as morning cereal. You're going to have the whole world making vanilla bacon in no time. I love it. Now, that's sort of a combination of sweet and savory, but let's go to the... M- more savory side. If you'd pause there, though, we need to take a quick break. More on the beauty of vanilla right after this. We're back, Chef Jamie Gwen, in your radio with Natasha McCaller as she waxes poetic on the brilliance of vanilla. I have a very distinct memory of a ceviche in Maui on my honeymoon that my husband and I enjoyed, yes, with the essence of vanilla and the flavor of passion fruit. So I was very excited to see your ceviche made with uh, vanilla sugar, right, in the sesame wafer, and then also vanilla paste in the ceviche mixture itself. Vanilla and seafood? Yes. Yes. It is a beautiful combination, and it just, it, it just makes everything. It's, this is such also a great thing to make for um, a dinner party or um, because you can, you can make it uh, ahead of time and then just spoon it into uh, a martini glass. Mm. Or a, a little, and, and pass it around with these little coconut black sesame wafers, and it just makes you think of sunset. Mm. And, yes. And and in using the the best freshest fish, it's it's very versatile. You can use snapper. You can use in in Hawaii opaka paka. Yes. I love saying that word. <laughs> and or or any firm white fish, and just just gently toss it together with um with the other ingredients, and it's mm. just. Absolutely divine. It looks delicious. Tips and tricks and expert knowledge that will make you a vanilla connoisseur in the new book release from Natasha McAller. It's M-A-C-A-L-L-E-R. The book is entitled Vanilla Table. Lots of really wonderful advice and storing suggestions and everything beautiful that is vanilla. I love your story, Natasha. You are a former professional ballerina, 30 years of performing with the Joffrey Ballet and the Baston Ballet and the stages of Broadway. And then I know you moved on when I met you at that point um, to consider another performing art, which is cooking. And I will tell you, you are making us all very proud Oh, thank you so much, Jamie. That's so very kind. Yeah, no doubt. The book is beautiful, and I'm glad to have it in my collection, and I know you'll want it in yours. You'll find an excerpted recipe at chefjamie.com 
with a direct link to the Amazon page for Vanilla Table. And you can learn more about Natasha McAller at dancingchef.net. Come back when you have a new vanilla recipe in the works, please, Natasha. I'd love to have you. Oh, I would love to. Okay. I'd be delighted. I thank look you. forward to it. See you at the restaurant soon. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> more fabulous food in your radio and lots more to learn right after this. Chef Jamie Gwen. We'll be right back. Dishing up culinary dreams, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio with some of the greatest gastronomic minds of our time. So you feel the sun at your back and the cool breeze off the Atlantic. You hear the sizzle of freshly caught fish on the grill. You are in Senegal on a gastronomic adventure with Chef Pierre Cham. Soulful stews and salsas that sing with bright citrus and fiery peppers and the flavors of ginger and mango and sweet potato are all the signatures of Pierre's homeland and their vibrant cuisine. Those are the flavors of Senegal. It is a fascinating country full of culinary traditions, and chef and restaurateur Pierre Cham is highlighting the virtues of his native land in his new cookbook release entitled Senegal. The book is so beautiful. It's an anthropology of sorts. It captures this most extraordinary Uh, essence of country that so many of us don't know about, myself included, and I loved the education. I turned page by page mesmerized, Chef. It is truly beautiful, and I am delighted to have you in our radios. Welcome. Thank you. Yes, of course. Um, Okay, let's start at the beginning, Pierre, please, because um, for like myself, who had to do research, I wanted to learn um, and to better understand for those that don't know where is Senegal? Senegal is in the west coast of Africa. It's like in the, the most western country in Africa, actually. Only seven hours flight from New York. From New York. And uh, beautiful, gorgeous waters, right, of the ocean. A lot of fresh fish. A lot of scotch bonnet chilies, I know, uh, native to your land and to your cuisine. What else could you tell us that, that really characterizes Senegal from a culinary perspective? Well, it's south of the Sahara Desert, so it's mm. a semi-desertic country, very dry in the north, and the southern part of Senegal is much more lush, yes. so um, forest and palm trees, mm. lots of seafood, because it's all coastal, so seafood is pretty much part of the daily diet. The grains that you would see are mostly rice, millet, fonio, sorghum, so those are the grains you'd see on a regular diet as well, but fish all kinds of seafood are part of our, our uh, daily, daily food. Daily staples. And I thought it was so interesting to learn that um, Senegalese food is influenced by a lot of places. I mean, you have your own culinary heritage, but the spices and the combinations of flavors really come from um, the surrounding areas and, and parts of the world that have, have made an influence on the food itself in Senegal. Yes, there's actually our colonial past. We had the French that came to Senegal for a couple hundred years now, so their influence is definitely part of our uh, culinary uh, horizon. Mm-hmm. 
In the south, you have the Portuguese in the area from Casamance. It's still actually very much part of it in the language. We still, my mom would speak only Portuguese Creole to me, so that's mm-hmm. also part of the um, the influences you would see in the south of Senegal near Guinea-Bissau border. And uh, the neighboring countries, of course, you know, from Mauritania, Mali, Guinea, all those other countries have been coming to Senegal. Because Dakar, I mean, Dakar, the capital city of Senegal, is a is kind of a hub. It's like because of its geographical position, situation, it's just a, 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 like a Carrefour highway where you see all these different influences coming. You also have uh, another influence, further one, that's from Vietnam. Yes. Because uh, Senegalese and the Vietnamese had the same French colonizer. So at some point, we had a, a rush of Vietnamese immigrants coming to Senegal when the French had to leave Vietnam, Indochine, it was called at the time. And these people arrived to Senegal and stayed there. Now their cuisine, they brought their cuisine that became part of our um, uh, Senegalese cuisine. Now we adopted it, and now you can go to a Senegalese name birthing ceremony without seeing any Vietnamese spring rolls, for instance, <laughs> as part of our, our cuisine now, the names. I think that you are sharing, I know not only from your heart and from your country, but such um, really incredible teachings. I found the book magical. It is beautiful to read. It is an education in and of itself. And I was very grateful to learn um, about you and your childhood. There's a tremendous adoration for women in, um, in Senegal, which I very much appreciate. Pierre, it was a pleasure. Thank you for sharing your passion. I hope you'll come back soon and share um, your newest modern takes on the Senegalese cuisine. Thank you, Jamie. Yes, of course. So that brings us to the end of another hour of Shared Wisdom. I hope that you had a moment of culinary nirvana, that I inspired you to be a better cook, and that you felt the culinary information abound. I am always sharing sizzling good eats right here in your radio every Sunday. And you'll find the recipes spoken about on this program posted weekly and updated daily at chefjamie.com. And on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, you can find my daily shameless updates on what I'm eating and drinking now. Please join in. I'll call this my last bite as usual. My last ounce or tidbit of culinary conversation. Nothing says goodbye to summer. Yes, it's coming soon, the end of summer. Quite like drinking iced tea in the warm sun. Even better, a refreshing early evening tea cocktail. Yes, from fruity to floral, if you add a little splash of vodka or even bourbon or gin to a fruity tea, you get a refreshing and addictive concoction. So my drink of the week is this week's last bite on the radio. It's called an ice pick, in fact, and my husband, who bartended um, many moons ago, talks about its popularity back then, and it's popping up on menus again. Before summer runs out, you'll want to make this bar favorite. You just mix your favorite sweet or unsweetened tea with a shot or two of your liquor of choice, vodka, tequila, and bourbon work. Well, over ice, of course, garnished with a lime wedge, and you have the ultimate cocktail to say so long to summer. See you real soon. 
You'll find the recipe posted at chefjamie.com, and I'll post it once again on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. And I will meet you here next Sunday in the kitchen. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off. I thank you for listening, and I hope you continue to eat well. Well.